0: Black. three monks walk into a bar proudly presented by the paper street soap company all natural handmade works great on bloodstains the paper street soap company i am rylan grant screenwriter ringo award-winning creator of fine comics like aberrant Banjax, and the jump the other voice in the dark the man on the box to the right this time is
1: david Avalone, a uh, filmmaker comic book writer, and uh, I think we've been saying Coffee Achiever.
0: Coffee Achiever, I love it. If you missed any of our previous conversations, episodes uh, featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, Cecil Castellucci, and many, many more, our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and other purveyors of worthwhile ear cracks, so double on back and check it all out, as always, but um, we have a great show for you today. Avalone, bring him on.
1: And dear, and here's... Shazen and Brad. Howdy, howdy, guys. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Uh, Brad, tell us a little bit about
2: yourself. Me? Okay. Uh, Uh, Whoa. I wrote a book called Hardcore Zen, and it was about my becoming a Zen monk and teacher while working at a production company that made... Giant Japanese monster movies. Oh, there's the Fair. book, and, and that was uh, a lot of years ago. 2003, I guess it came out, and I've written uh, I think seven more books since then. The la- latest one is called uh, "Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen." Oh, look, Rylan's got them all. He's got more than I got. <laughs> I, I, my, I have copies of them, but they're not here in my in my home. Uh, That's okay. So I uh, so a wrote a bunch right of books away. about Zen, and I'm a Zen monk and writer and uh, play bass in a, a hardcore punk band called Zero Defects whenever we can get together. And, uh, yeah,
1: that's probably enough. Very nice. <laughs> and Shozan?
3: Um, yeah, I'm uh, Shozan Jack Cobner. That's my pen name. I wrote a couple books, uh, Zen Confidential and Single White Monk. Oh, there they are. <laughs> that's all I got for you um yeah so i
0: we, we should probably get it out of the way our our relationship here so um so i guess most of our our viewers our listeners most of the uh the rylan grant uh 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 fans all all you know uh all dozen of them or or, or so um we they know
3: our old fans work right
0: what, what, what was that I
3: know you from your OnlyFans work, right? My
0: OnlyFans yes. work, exactly. It's it's very successful. Well, I mean, I, I you know, I actually have a pen name on OnlyFans, and that's hundreds of thousands. But I try to keep the uh, the two worlds separate. So, sure. uh, thank you for outing me uh, uh, on the air um, uh, to our dozens of listeners. Um, <laughs> however, uh, but, but what, you know, one of the odder uh, uh, sort of, you know, little blurbs in my bio is that I happen to be an ordained Soto of Zen uh, a Buddhist monk, uh, uh, for whatever that means and, and is worth, but we know each other from the Zen world. Uh, uh, you two are also, uh, uh Zen monks, uh, hence the, the, the name of the, uh, the podcast three, uh, monks walk into a bar. I didn't include Epeloni in that. I'm sorry,
1: Epeloni. Do, do you want no, to be referred definitely. We, we not can ordain monk. him. I, yeah. I do not. Okay, I, do not uh, <laughs> I do not. Uh, what's the word? I, I am. I am. I don't think I am uh, necessarily the best candidate for monkhood, but you never know. <laughs>
0: Excellent. Well, you know, uh, uh, we may get to is. you by the end of this. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's good. We, we should talk about that later. But um, but we know each other from the Zen world. Uh, I sat with Brad for uh, for a lot of years now, uh, and Brad was actually the the monk who ordained me. And Genso, uh, for years, was the the abbot at the uh, at the monastery where uh, where we, meaning uh, the group that Brad and I belong to, held our, our retreats. And so uh, for. Uh, twice a year, we would go up into the mountains, and Gento would uh, would help us uh, uh, put on an amazing uh, a zen retreat for uh, for a bunch of people. Um, and so we got to know each other pretty well. Um, the other quirk, the other twist, is that, uh, as they sort of uh, detailed, Brad and Gento happened to be um, two of, you know... Um, in my opinion the most important the most influential uh, but most importantly the most entertaining uh, Zen authors out there Um, they write you know very kind of engaging uh, and accessible um, books about Zen and Zen practice and incorporating Zen into your life and so I thought that was interesting to sort of have them on a uh, a writing podcast to talk about this Um, and let me um, let me try and set this up without um, I don't know without having the whole conversation myself but um, so this is an interesting week to have this because we talked last week with, with Richard Fairgray and Ed LaRoche um, about all the kind of good, the bad and the ugly that goes into promoting one's work as, as a comic creator and as an author. And so we're going to keep that discussion going uh, to a certain degree this week, but we're going to kind of up the ante. Um, so we touched on this last week and I feel like we touch on it every week, this idea um, of, of the author sort of by necessity becoming an entertainer also. Right. Um, You know, people aren't necessarily just buying your books because they're good or because they're there. Right. They're honestly kind of they're buying your personality. They're buying this this bigger thing. I mean, you can write the greatest book in the world, um, but the chances are that no one will ever see it unless you are to some degree strapping on your dancing shoes and getting a little jiggy with it. Right. you know, and the, I, I think the, the the most obvious example of this is is this podcast. I mean, this podcast is at least in part a promotional tool for Avalonia and I, and for for most oh, yeah. of the guests that come on. I, 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 obviously, um, this podcast is part of our dance, right? Um, this is about kind of raising our profile, keeping our names like you know at the front of people's minds, right? And and our books also. Um, so. You know, I thought it was interesting to bring on a couple of Zen authors to talk about that because, like, because you have the same problems that we do, um, but there is this other thing. Like, uh, uh, you are you are ordained Zen monks. You are writing about Zen, um, and you are at least to some degree like teaching Buddhism, teaching the Dharma with your books. And so, what I'm interested in is, I think that that changes the equation uh, uh, to uh, to a certain degree, right? Um, uh, there are kind of I don't know, other hoops to jump through, other hurdles to clear, uh when you have to become kind of, you know, part uh uh you know, part author, part entertainer, right? When you have to like do your dance. Um uh so I guess the other preface before I kind of go on for too long is that so Brad and I did a podcast together last year at some point where, we're, where we kind of discussed a little bit of this. And I, I highly recommend it. It was part of Brad's uh, letters to a dead friend about Zen series uh, that you can find on YouTube. And I assume you can find it on iTunes and Spotify and all that stuff. It's a great yeah. series. Go go check it out. But 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 specifically check out there's an episode t- uh, titled Zen Entertainment. Uh, um, where, where Brad and I kind of talk about some of this, and and we we explore in that conversation this line between Zen and spirituality and entertainment. And while we were prepping for it, Brad said something very interesting that kind of sparked the whole idea for this podcast. And and Brad said, I, I'm I'm sort of paraphrasing here. Brad said, I feel like Buddhism and Eastern spirituality in general in the U.S. is almost part of the entertainment industry. Not all of it, but certainly people like Deepak Chopra. Are entertainers first? Maybe even His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh are too. Um, uh, Dar- Dharma liberties, he says, as Noah Levine likes to call himself, and and me too. That Brad includes himself in that. And so, so anyway, I want to start today uh, by sort of exploring this idea and 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 perhaps how it's maybe at odds with the message you're conveying, like your your spiritual training. Maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. I mean, it's not necessarily black and white at odds but there's definitely like an equation to be worked out here, like a, an extra wrinkle. And so, so let me, let me just set that up. I know that's a lot, but let's start on on it. Okay. So, uh, so Brad, why don't you start?
2: Okay. Uh, what can I say? Yeah, I think it's true. And I reread that thing when you sent it back to me that I wrote a year ago about uh, zen, zen entertainment and Zen celebrities and, and that Dharma, Dharma-lebrity was a that phrase that Noah coined, which just (laughs) bothers me a lot. But, but there is a there is a certain amount of that. I I don't know if it has ever been different. Because if you look at old sutras you know some of the, the the way a lot of the old Buddhist sutras begin is they'll they'll say you know whatever master it was it was speaking to 10,000 people and you know they they give a big uh, thing about how many people that, that he's addressing is, is is often the way an old Sutra will start so they're trying to impress you with how popular the the guy is and so I don't know if it's ever been uh, not part of the equation it as far as I'm concerned, though, but uh, as far as the author thing, I try to keep the my work as an author as one thing and my work as a as a Zen teacher as another thing, and I try to treat them somewhat differently. Like if I'm if I'm going to be an author, I want to sell as many books as I can and you know promote them and do all the things that an author does, and that's sort of my that's my day job, you know, and my my hobby, which I don't you know, uh, which I don't try to make money at or 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 promote very much is uh, is being a Zen teacher. You know, I usually do most of my Zen teacher stuff for for free, or else I you know get paid expenses or something like that when I go lead a retreat or whatever. Occasionally, I make a little bit of money, but not much. But um, but I don't look at that as a as a as a business, you know. And I, I try to keep anything business related out of that because that that's the way you compromise it. I don't know. if That's an answer, but. It's something.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. That's that's. I mean, I, I'm in kind of a. You know, I published both those books when I was a monk, and I definitely had a. I mean, I even wrote under a pseudonym. Um, so those, those sides of myself, the the monk slash teacher or shika, which is the head monk at Mount Baldy, the Zen Center I was at, those things and the and the writer were like two totally separate separate things, Um, you know, and I kept a pretty low profile. Like, uh, so it was kind of like, I would just write these essays and maybe publish some of them in the Boots magazines, then collect them in a couple books and then send them out there. And um, I didn't do a lot of, a ton of, uh, you know, promotion or, or, or legwork pushing them or advertising them. So, um, you know, but but kind of like what brad said that definitely two different sides like when i when i when i'm talking to somebody as a as a monk um or some someone who might be giving advice on how to sit meditation totally different than if i'm talking about writing or publishing or anything like that it seem like just two different two different um, parts of myself can i can i turn the question
0: back on you so so i think you know, I think ideally you do keep them separate, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and I think that that is a that is a thoughtful and worthwhile pursuit. But isn't it impossible to a yeah. degree? I mean, th- th- you know, there, there has to be. You know, I mean, I, I have I have to think that these two things are bumping against each other constantly, right? I mean, because again, you're you're, I mean, you're teaching one thing, but then you're, you know, the the material you're writing about it's this it's it's the same. You're pulling from the same pile, right? So. Yeah. I mean,
2: well, obvi- yeah, obviously there's some overlap and people come to retreats that I run because they've read my books, you know, that's, uh, that's something that, that happens. Occasionally, uh, well, actually, a fair amount of people come to retreats that I run who, who don't know my books, which I, I always find kind of interesting because uh, they, they're just interested in Zen and they've, they've picked this retreat to go to, and it just happens to be mine. So they don't even know uh, my books. That happens a fair amount of time too. But yeah, it is. It is the same. It is the same sort of thing. It's. I don't know. It's a different. There's a different feeling to uh, speaking to uh, speaking to. A People one-on-one about this stuff is is a is very different from writing about it, and and you have to have a whole different sort of approach to it. And even speaking to a, a live audience about it is is different because you're kind of interacting with the people and trying to find out what they want. But as I told you in the thing in the essay that or the the thing that I wrote, with the letters to a dead friend about Zen podcast thing. Um, the fact that I have some experience in the entertainment industry probably helped. You know, I worked for a, a film and TV production company for 15 or so years, and then I was in bands a lot, and I kind of had this this background of of knowing how to entertain an audience, you know, and and what you know what you got to do to promote a a thing. I'm not I'm not a, any sort of an expert at it. If I was really good at it, I'd probably be making a lot more money, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, the one thing it was I was thinking about before this uh, pod before this podcast started, when when I was thinking about what I could say was, I've had encounters with people. I remember one time I was at Tassajara, which is a Zen uh, monastery up in Northern California, and I was just talking to somebody. Uh, this was during their guest season, so there were a lot of people there who were who were just there. Um, kind of as you you can, during the summer, you go there, and it's sort of, sort of run like a resort. Uh, the monks are there doing their zazen and things, but there's also this resort aspect to it. And I think the person I was talking to was one of those kind of people, but who was interested in Zen. And he was giving me this advice about how to make my brand stronger. He was very interested. He liked my books, and he wanted to help me out. And he kept giving me all this advice about it. And the one thing I can remember is he said, I should my books should be more prescriptive. I still remember that that verb, prescriptive. You know, you should tell people exactly what you know you want them to do. Give them lessons and things like that. And I realized that I never do that in in my books. I never even thought about doing that. But I guess that's how you know if you want to to be a big name in this business, you you got to do those sorts of of books. And. I actually, I actually spent a minute or two—I don't know, maybe a week—trying to write one of those books before I just got disgusted with myself and put it away. So, so I realized I can't, I can't do. That.
1: Well, I, you know, I, I think there's an overall thing here that uh, the world's greatest spiritual teacher who only reaches an audience of the person directly in front of him is maybe not the world's greatest spiritual teacher. Uh-huh. Uh, it's great to move one heart, but we're all in this to move multiple hearts, right? And I'm not I'm not talking, I'm talking about writing across the board. Mm. Uh, I could sit in a bar and tell people great stories 24 uh, seven if that's all I really wanted to do. Uh, it's moving the, 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 the largest amount of hearts. And I think you can do that. We all said everyone, regardless of what you're writing about, whether it's spiritual practice or not, Everyone has a line of what they will and will not do to reach an audience, Uh, what they're comfortable with, what doesn't contradict their message, and what does contradict their message. I mean, if you want to talk about contradicting a message, what's his name? I can't remember which Republican. It might be Josh Hawley wrote a book about the evils of big tech. He is promoting it on Twitter and selling it on Amazon. That's funny. That's just, yeah, yeah. that's, I'm, I mean, I know it's more challenging to print your book and sell it without Amazon, but if the enemy of the world is Jeff Bezos and you're selling your book on Amazon, I think you've made a, a spiritual mistake. I think you've, you've, uh, you know, you're a hypocrite selling to a, a nation of hypocrites that's because of course, everyone who buys your book has to register a credit card at Amazon to do so. And how did they hear about it? They heard about it on Twitter because Jack let them hear about it. So there's an irony there that's far above any other like, oh my God, am I selling out because I went on a talk show? Am I selling out because I did this, that, or the other thing? But I think we all, we all have a, unless your work is completely empty, it doesn't matter what you're writing, there is, your philosophy is in there. Your approach to life, your belief in how the world works, is going to be in there. And I don't, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not an accomplished enough reader of Zen philosophy to know if there's any contradiction at all with selling a book on Amazon or, you know, reaching a large audience. As you said, you know, if they're bragging about the the teacher was talking to ten thousand people, that's that's exactly the same principle, really.
3: Yeah, think- yeah, go ahead, Brett. Mm, go ahead. No, yeah, it's funny. I mean, when you're talking, I, I always think of my books, um, I almost don't think of them as kind of a contradiction in the sense of, I figure there are people out there, or at least when I was writing these Zen books, I figured there were people out there who were practicing, who I, I don't think I was ever trying to necessarily teach anybody anything through, through my books um, or, or even reach – people to spread dharma teachings it was more like there are people out there who are practicing who are who are struggling who are confused who are excited who are lonely about zen practice or spiritual practice in general Um, i just wanted to provide some talk to somebody provide some companionship Mm -hmm. share stories um not necessarily from the perspective of a teacher more of a friend,
1: like a like a friend. Sure, but I mean, a teacher a teacher can be a friend, and your friends teach you all the time. I mean, I think that's a a valuable part of friendship. It's not. I I think there. I'm not referring to teacher as a hierarchical mm. uh, experience necessarily, because I don't think it. I don't think it has to be. I think peers yeah. teach you things. I think
3: yeah. you know it's yeah. a cliche, yeah, yeah. but
1: if you're teaching students, teach you things. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. yeah, yeah. Well,
0: I, I, I think that I, I think Brad's, uh, like, um, uh, prescriptive, uh, uh, thing is 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 very interesting in terms of this stuff because, um, I mean, yeah, if you're teaching with your books, I mean, I've, I've read, you know, all of your books, both of you, um. If you're teaching anything you're teaching by example, I mean, you you' were telling your story. This is uh, uh this was stuff that happened to me, and this is how I've incorporated this into my life. You're never saying, "Hey, do this. Step one, you know what I'm saying? and right. and, I, and I, I agree with Brad is that is that if you guys if you guys went off and you wrote the like here are ten steps to like right. You know, becoming this enlightening enlightened being, you guys would probably be on the New York Times bestseller list, and, and you'd be, you know, you'd yeah. be making it right. Uh, I that's that's an exaggeration for effect, but 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 you know what I mean. Um, yeah. uh, you know, they're more um, I don't know, they're they're more they're more narratives, you know, about you. Uh, uh, they have more in common with the, you know, I don't know, like a, you know, an old Bukowski book or something like that. You know, uh, uh, as a, as opposed to um. You know, it's 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 living the Zen life and not a a steps right. to enlightenment or or do this or I, I mean I, I think that's really interesting and then I mean, the the other thing that was occurring to me is I love this idea of the tug of war between kind of the author and and you know and the Zen teacher or Zen practitioner um, and Brad what it made me think of is so so another kind of behind the curtain thing is so so for you know for for several years. Uh, I was the president of the nonprofit uh, uh, behind Brad's Zen Group, and it was the group that we eventually raised the money to open up the Angel City Zen Center. And you know, so uh, a lot of times I was at odds with this uh, with this teacher practitioner version of Brad because, as the you know, because 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 Brad's first duty was kind of whatever to to the Dharma and to the integrity of of the whole you know, teaching uh, situation and whatnot. But as, as the president of his nonprofit, my, uh, my first duty was to keeping the lights on to yeah. paying the rent. Uh, and that meant, that meant promotion. And that meant putting butts in seats, yeah. uh, uh, quote unquote, which was, which, which became like Brad's, I think least favorite phrase while, while we were working together is man, we need more people in the door. We need more, uh, uh, you, you know, it, it, and so, I mean, that was always, um, I mean, I, you know, I, I assume I, I, I've i had to take a, a step back for a number of reasons, uh, you know, uh, mostly um, career stuff, but also I have a four year old and all of these things. And so I'm not as involved as I would like to be or as I used to be. Um, uh, but I imagine that's still a problem. Right. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, balancing these these two things. Right.
2: Yeah, the, I mean the thing about Zen, in specifically, is that, okay. Buddhism is usually grouped with the what are they called missionary religions? You know, meaning it's it's not like Judaism where you just keep it to your to yourself and don't try to bring anybody else in. It's 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 always had that aspect of of trying to kind of make itself available to you know anybody who wants it. But on the other hand, we don't proselytize. You know, you don't go you don't go knocking on the door and try and give people the good news of Zen. Then. and the other thing about getting butts in seats is is yeah. the, okay the old the old tradition at a Zen monastery and, and uh, uh, Chozan Gento would, would know about this probably is is that the way you enter a Zen monastery is is in the old days you would go up you know climb up the mountain and and sit on the stoop and and knock on the door and they would say get out of here and then you'd stay on the stoop for you know like, I don't know a week or something in the rain and the snow without getting fed, and and the, by doing that, prove that you were sincere enough to belong in this place. So it was the opposite of reaching out and trying to get butts and seats. You know, it was it was yeah. like you don't you you we're not even letting you in here unless we're sure that you're sincere about it. Now yeah. I, I don't with the Angel City Zen Center and things. I don't try to go that far, but I also don't. I, I it, it's kind of it's more trouble than it's worth to have people in there who, who aren't really that interested in it, you know? So I want people to be interested in it first, you know, and once they're sufficiently interested in it, then they can come to us and then, you know, I'm happy to, to work with them, but I don't want to, I don't want to try to recruit anybody because then, you know, you just get people who just don't, you know, they're just there for the, Free cookies or something. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And, and butts and butts seats is a really ugly way to say it, and it's the it's the black and white. It's the very black version of that. Um, but again, like you know, you gotta you gotta pay the rent. You gotta keep the electricity on. So there needs to be a balance, right? And, and 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 more than anything, it was about letting people know that we were there. I mean, yeah. because I think that's important because because there are people who want this. Yeah. um And and there, were, and, there and, and and you had you had tons of fans of your books. Right. Uh, but every once in a while I would be at another center or something like that. Maybe like, Oh, what Brad Warner has a center. Really? Wow. Yeah, where, yeah. where are you guys? And it's like, okay, Everybody well, <laughs> we're not, we're not doing our job here. Mm-hmm. So, so, so again, then becomes the necessity of some sort of promotion and some sort of, but I think striking that balance is, is always interesting. And I, and I think Avalone, Avalone, you, you know, you, you were, you're doing a good job of trying to frame it in a larger, like, writing author context right where there are all these things that um that we are you know we have to decide what we're comfortable with in terms of content in terms of subject matter in terms of uh um you know i mean i i get i get offers from cons and podcasts and stuff like that all the time come on and promote and and you know i in a vacuum okay well well anything that gets me in front of some more people anything that uh um uh that that Gets the word out there is good for me, but there are lines that I won't cross. Right? Um, uh, you know, every once in a while I get an offer from a uh, um, from a, a podcast, and uh, and I don't recognize it, and and I'm not the guy who's going to be like, oh well, they only have they only have 200 listeners, so I'm not going to go on it. I'm not that guy. However, where I draw the line is if I go on their Twitter and see hashtag Comic Skate, right? Uh, uh, I've, I, <laughs> it, it, you guys probably don't know, but ComicScape Skate is essentially this. You know, it, it's a hate group, I guess, right? It's a uh, we 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 won't go into that. Um, hate groups uh, are
2: everything, aren't they?
0: <laughs> yeah, but 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 you know what I'm saying. So so it's like. So I would have gone on there otherwise, but that's a line in the sand for me. Like they're going to get a fuck mm-hmm. you email from me after that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I know Eveloni. I mean, maybe you don't want to open open up the door on this, but there was a, you know, there was a little hiccup with Dynamite, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 you had to it, this. It, that was your publisher. That was your uh, my your, publisher
1: your... got caught supporting this online alt right thing, and I, you know, I knew the context and the backstory, and I knew that the guy didn't share the views of comic skate. He had an old friend who was a leader of it and he got conned and he got taken advantage of, and his name was absolutely dragged through the mud for it. Uh, and I was sad for him, uh, but I had to say, look, I can't work with you guys until you apologize and make it very, very clear that you're no longer doing business with these people. And they did that. Um, so I'm, you know, I've gone back to doing some things with them, but it's uh you know, it's, it's, it, it is it's a tightrope we always have to walk, and particularly in the present day when people are more, you know, there was a time when you wouldn't know that your co-worker was a racist or a sexist because he didn't have a forum to be spouting his racism or sexism, uh, except maybe at the lunch table, and maybe he would listen to the conversation at the lunch table and decide to keep his mouth shut. Uh, now there's no... There can be the opposite of societal pressure to keep your mouth shut and hide your racism or sexism. Things like Skate encourage people to trumpet their their uh, their bigotries. So it's a it's a it's an interesting landscape. But all that said, it's like yeah, we all make choices about what is and what is not acceptable. And I wanted to get to just as an aside, the thing you said about uh, being narrative rather than prescriptive i think that there is it's just two different audiences there's an audience that absolutely wants it's handheld and wants here is how you zen step yeah. one yeah that's a good title I think, yeah. I think i should i should cut yeah. use that I there's there's an audience there's, uh,
3: book.
1: but there are I, i've always believed the best teaching actually is through narrative is through i mean and yeah. i isn't that a you know you know, all spiritual practice is full of fables and uh, analogies and allegories and stories that illustrate a spiritual point. And again, we raise children with fairy tales, hoping to like, don't be like the fox with the sour grapes. Don't be, don't do this, don't do that. The the moral is baked in to Mm. the story. And I've always, you know, as again, as just my own thing, the the words must and should always shut my brain off right away. And particularly with medical or spiritual, it's like we're all very different. What works for all of us is very okay. different. And the minute you tell me, here's the one thing you, I mean, and I'm talking about, here's the one thing you must do to l- stop getting those headaches. Here's the one that this, it's like, no, the way to phrase it is this is what worked for me. Yeah. I wish you the best of luck applying what worked for me to you. And maybe you can tell me what worked for you and we can exchange some ideas. But the minute it's, Oh, I know how to solve that because this is the solution that worked for me. My, my favorite, uh, filmmaking philosopher, philosopher of film, uh, a guy named Walter Murch. He's world's greatest living film editor, edited apocalypse. Now worked with Coppola for years, uh, the conversation. And, uh, He has a great book about film editing, but he opens it with the best advice about taking advice I've ever seen, which is that uh, Igor Stravinsky wrote a book about composing, or about conducting, and Igor Stravinsky was a wild man, and if you read Igor Stravinsky's book on conducting, his main advice is stay calm, be inward, be small, rein it in bring it in which is fantastic fucking advice if you're Igor Stravinsky. If you are a if you are a uh prone to be timid, quiet, small person, it is the worst advice in the fucking world and I wonder aloud how many conductors who were introverts read that book and went, "Oh, I got to I got to use smaller arm. I got to be smaller up there." And it's like, "No, that's the worst advice you could have been given." So, You know, he opens his book of teaching by saying this is a book written by Walter Murch and the advice is coming from Walter Murch based on Walter Murch's life, career and experiences, which may be entirely antithetical to your life, career and experiences. And you should always have that perspective of who is the teacher. Best professor I ever had in college said to me, everyone who wrote everyone who writes a book is even if they're not engaged in the act of selling you something, they have an idea they want to get across and they may cook the books a little bit to get that idea across. And just, that's not a bad thing or a good thing. It is just a thing and you should always be aware of it when you're reading.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. There's, um, I mean, there's, there's like, a lot of spiritual books that seem to fit into the self-help genre in in terms of the prescriptive um, model that we're talking about. And it's really interesting. Um, Yeah. It's interesting. Like, like Brad was saying, you know, or somebody was saying we write more narrative books, but if you, there's just like a pocket you can slot yourself into where you're not necessarily saying you should, or you must, but you're holding space with a certain kind of authority, and mm-hmm. you're you're mixing in narrative with um, with prescription, with you know um, just a certain amount of authority, and and that I mean you you will put butts in seats or cracks on cushions or whatever we're calling oh, cracks it. cracks on cushions. Cracks oh, on cushions. It's amazing. Yeah, I I I, I, I think That'll that's the title of your next book. book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: are you are you keeping that one
3: yeah that's mine <laughs> okay no,
2: you, can you know you talk about audiences and who you want to reach I I when I wrote hardcore Zen I I'd been trying I've been trying to be a science fiction writer I worked for this company that made science fiction films I was interested in science fiction and I, I wrote science fiction novels and short stories for a long time and got a couple of the I think two of the short stories got published and got like this close to getting uh, uh, one of the novels published before the publisher decided uh, they they got cold feet about it but but so i i was kind of after doing this for years and i had a zen teacher who said write a write a book about zen and so i i sat there and wrote this book about zen and when I, and and i i had the the audience in mind i had was my 14 year old nephew that's it, it. <laughs> you know i was writing for ben and uh, and I wrote this book for for Ben and I, I looked at it at the end and I thought well nobody's going to publish this and and I sent it out to uh, to some publishers because I knew the drill by then you know I'd done it a dozen times or more I don't know how many times and uh, and then that was the book that got that got picked up so in one sense like when people ask when when wannabe authors ask me for author advice I I, I always tell that story because I, I think it's kind of like when I was trying to write for an audience, I got nowhere. And when I finally decided to write for no audience or for this, you know, for this single person who eventually never read the book, by the way, <laughs> um, it's, uh, you know, he, he,
0: he still hasn't uh, read it.
2: Well, he won't tell me if he's read it or not. So <laughs> okay. I don't know. He's being cagey about it. That's funny. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know if he's read it. He's not he's not much of a reader. Uh, well, he used to be, but he's you know, anyway
0: yeah there's an audiobook now tell them to yeah them just to listen it to up. it just, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um I, I i mean i i think that's uh, that's an interesting study i think that's that's great advice i mean and and i think you and i have um have covered similar things uh uh you know over the course of of this podcast of 28 episodes or whatever we're on is this idea that um you know, I mean, you've talked about how nobody took you seriously, and that, you, 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 had, you had about 25 years of, of being an actual filmmaker, and nobody really took you seriously, uh, you know, in, uh, in, in Hollywood until you became a comic book writer. Then everybody thought that you had all these amazing things to say uh, uh, about filmmaking. And, you know, this idea of kind of how, like, diversifying your bonds can really be the way forward. Um, that worked for me. I mean, um, uh, I started out as a screenwriter. You know, um, uh, it was, you know, 2004, I think I got paid to write my first, uh, script and in, in Hollywood and, um, and I haven't had to do, luckily I haven't had to do anything but write since then, but there were these peaks and valleys, right. And, uh, and in the beginning, you know, the, the town was very different where you wrote a script, you took it out. If it was good, you sold it. That was just how it worked. And so I had a couple of good years like that. And then the financial crisis hits, and Hollywood completely remakes the way they, they do business. And then suddenly you couldn't, you know, you couldn't sell an original screenplay, an original idea to save your life. And I had a couple of lean years. And if I had, if I had stuck to that, if I had just stayed a screenwriter, um, I would probably be out of the business right now. Right. I had to kind of find my way around all of this stuff. Like I had to figure out a way to like, you know, to, to stay in the game. Um, And what happened at the same time, and I've talked about this before, is the IP revolution where like, well, Hollywood, you know, everything in Hollywood then had to be based on something, whether it was a book, uh, 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 a short story, uh, a comic book, uh, a video game, whatever. And that's what was selling in Hollywood. You couldn't sell an original idea, but you could sell one of those. And so after a couple of lean years, I finally got, you know, finally had this revelation. Well, if they want IP, let me give them IP. And so at at that point, I became a a writer instead of a screenwriter, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I had stories to tell. I knew that I couldn't tell them in Hollywood the way I wanted to tell them. So I needed to find other ways to tell the story. Right. Um, and so that meant, uh, I mean, the first thing I did was I started writing short stories. Um, and then the kind of, you know, the irony, the twist of it all was, so I write the short story, I get it published. Um, and it was going to be fine with me if that's all it was like, uh, I, I, I had been for a couple of years at that point, writing screenplays that, well, you know, some of them didn't sell, and then they lived on a shelf for the rest of their 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 lives. So the rest of my natural life. Um, uh, best case scenario, they would sell, and you know, I'd get some money. But then Hollywood makes so few movies that they sit on a shelf in a production office. <laughs> they own it. I could never go back to it. Um, the beauty of becoming a writer instead of just a screenwriter was okay. If I wrote a short story, if I wrote a comic book, it existed out in the world. People could find it. People would find my story. My story had a life. Um, and then the kind of like, you know, ironic twist was that, well, Hollywood was not interested in those stories before, but the moment I turned them into a screenplay, we had a bidding war over them. Right. And, that, and, and then people start turning them into it to movies and TV shows. Um, and so I think that's interesting is that I, I, I mean, I think, you know, we are all, um, you know, I know Brad, you started out in the film business. Uh, we haven't talked about it, but, but shows on you started out in the film business, also. You were a screenwriter for for more than a few years before you became a uh, uh, um, you know before you kind of really doubled down on the monk thing, and then became a, a, a an author after that. Um, and I think that is interesting is that I think that what we all have in common is that um, we're storytellers, um, right? Um, and we have this stuff inside us that needs to get out. It needs to be dealt with. I mean, for me, for me, writing is therapeutic. I get my demons on a page and I beat the shit out of them um and and it's the same if i'm writing a uh um you know if i'm if i'm writing a screenplay if i'm writing a comic book or if i'm writing a talk that i'm gonna give to a zen group um it's the absolute same mechanism uh it is it it, it is it is me with an idea to express with a demon to slay and i'm doing that on the page um and then that gets reflected uh, however you do it and so i I mean i think it's interesting that um you know both of you tried i mean you you did television you did uh uh uh, movies whatever it was first sci-fi novels and then you know you're you're kind of like water flowing trying to find your outlet if it doesn't work over here then you flow over here i had to do the same thing and then this was what ended up this was kind of the dam that broke for you, right? This was where you found your audience. This was the the stage upon which you were supposed to kind of, you know, present your plays, I guess. I think that's really interesting.
3: Yeah, it's interesting how that happens. And oftentimes kind of by accident, you know, I mean, you, you sort of, you wind up you know, connecting with an audience for, in, in some medium that you never really would have imagined. I mean, I never thought I, I was always, when I was writing sc- my terrible screenplays, um, I would try and tell a spiritual story of some kind, um, but I never imagined I would be writing essays about my life as a, as a Zen Buddhist monk. And you, Rylan, you said that you put your demons on the page and beat the shit out of them. The only difference, I think, with me and you is I put my demons on the page and they beat the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: it's very entertaining to watch, to watch you get the uh, your ass kicked. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's you. It's usually a little of both I think uh, I had to write something this fall and it was for a comic book you know and it was the end of an arc where I needed the hero the protagonist to uh, hit his lowest point and be suicidal and you know I take my work seriously enough that I had to think about what would what would make me do that what would and that was writing that, around the time, I think I actually like struggled with it for months. And then three days after when the election was called for Biden, I was able to sit down and finish it because I was like, the tension was too great. Uh, on top of the traumatic stuff that I was writing about, it was, it, it, it beat me up. It beat me up writing about it. And I, you know, I usually, it's easy to think writers are pretentious when they talk about there being any kind of cost. It's, it's an easy job. I'd still rather do it than put up drywall or be a grip like I was for four years or any other ridiculous things I've done for a living working in a furniture factory. But uh, but it's if you take it seriously, there is a risk and you are putting yourself on the line and you are exposing yourself to, you're making yourself think about things that maybe a lot of people walk around going, I'm never going to think about that. I'm never going to confront that i'm gonna i'm gonna leave pandora's box in the back of the closet and i'm not gonna dig in there pull it out open it up and take it full in the face uh from Mm -hmm. what's in from all the evil in the box but you can't really do this job well if you're unwilling to look in the box no it's you're
2: you're right it's it's tough i've got i've done i've i do my own audio books and there's one book i have not done an audio book for yet because it's just there's too much trauma and stuff in that book. And, and uh, the last time it was a uh, two years ago, I opened it up and just read it silently to myself to thinking about, can I do an audio book? And after like three pages, I'm like, ah, oh, it's not ready yet. and <laughs> Put it away. So, you know, so there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of dragging stuff out uh, when you do, when you do writing.
1: Yeah. And like I said, you, you, you can avoid all of that and write very surfacey stuff, but it's like, I think one of you said earlier about, you know, writing for an imaginary audience rather than writing for yourself or writing for a specific audience. And I think ultimately it's a sucker's game to try to imagine what people are going to like, especially if those people aren't you. (laughs) Like I can imagine what I'm going to like, and you can hope that people share, share that like, uh, but, I think sitting down and going, I'm going to construct a device that will attract readers. You know, yeah, I think there are people who succeeded that and they write terrible stuff. And some of them are multimillionaires from writing terrible, terrible stuff. because That's the world. And there are people who don't know the difference between margarine and butter. And there are people who prefer margarine and God, like someone's got to buy it. Not me, but you know, I, I, there, you know, so it always cracked me up when, uh, you know, someone used to ask Tarantino who his favorite director was. And I, I don't think he says this anymore, but he used to say De Palma. And when he said that, I was like, but that's just Diet Hitchcock. You really prefer Diet Hitchcock to Hitchcock? Okay. Good for you, man. Like, some people prefer the imitation to the the real. Mm. And, uh, and again, for Brian De Palma, those movies are very real. For Quentin Tarantino, those movies are very real. It's just... And that's the other thing is people can, and this is the thing we all, there's nothing, we have no control over this. People can get something deep out of the dumbest, most, like you can read depth into something that's not there if the depth is in you.
2: Yeah, talk to me about the Three Stooges
1: Stooges sometime. sometime. Yeah, but that's (laughs) the, you know, the Three Stooges. There's a great essay by Philip Roth, and I think he's absolutely right about this, about the Marx Brothers jewish family born of immigrants groucho chico and harpo are the immigrant experience broken into thirds i'd actually the the enormous oh, yeah. thing he misses that i can't believe is he missed zeppo, <laughs> zeppo zeppo's full assimilation zeppo yeah. always plays the white guy the societally accepted guy but you've got harpo who does not speak the language is rendered mute and has to take the lowest caste job you've got chico Who speaks the language with a strong accent is identifiably foreign and is still doing lower class menial jobs and is generally assumed to be a criminal and then you've got groucho who has achieved he's a professor he's a politician he has a white collar-ish job but he's still suspect he's still rufus firefly he's still he's still a he's still having to hustle hustle white society instead of actually being a goy instead of actually being part of it and I think that's a like did those guys sit down and map of course they didn't they didn't sit down and map out we're gonna make comedies about the immigrant experience not in a trillion years but they were drawing from the material of their lives and the lives of the people around them and that profundity, you again, you could watch Marx Brothers' movies your whole life and not notice that it's about three Jewish guys who are constantly on the outside of society. That subtext might be invisible to you constantly, but it is there. <laughs> you know, it yeah. is there even if the artists did not embed it purposefully.
3: You know. It seems like that's kind of the best stuff. Like if you can write something that's really simple that goes in like an arrow, and then all the academics and the, are going to unpack it. All the people who are fans are going to unpack it. But yeah, there's something about like creating an archetypal character or a situation um, uh, that that yeah. That's I think that's what we try and do in, in mm-hmm. working on narrative stuff.
1: And I also think there, you know, there is something to be said for if you imbue something with your life experience. Uh, I've had this experience multiple times. I write something and I think I know what it is about thematically, and I think I know why I wrote it. And then I look at it 10 years later and go, oh, I was processing a completely different thing. I I, I was the, my dad was a novelist, wrote, among other things, about 36 novels about this uh, detective character named Ed Noon. And over the course of my life, He's long passed away now, but I read a lot of them, and I read the third Ed Noon novel, which is called Dead Game, and my dad wrote for for the genre. It's not very violent or bloody stuff. He was kind of a sensitive, gentle guy. So try to imagine a sensitive, gentle guy writing in the Mike Hammer period and genre. But Dead Game is incredibly violent. All the bad people are killed in horrible ways fate is an unstoppable monster that kills everybody that crosses it. And I read it and I said, this is like freakishly violent for you. And he went, what was I doing? And, oh, I was getting divorced when I wrote that. (laughs) (laughs) And he, and this was, that was 1956. And we had this conversation maybe in 1986. And he said, I've never thought about that that that's the most violent Ed Noon novel, but he's like, you're right, I was I was going through a divorce, I was in horrible psychological pain, 24 hours a day, I felt guilty every minute of the day, and I wrote a really violent book in which everybody who does wrong is horribly punished.
0: I, I it's, it's really interesting to look at how that stuff filters in because, you know, in my experience, I mean, I, you know, I'm often writing five things at the same time or whatever, and sometimes, you know, usually you go in and if you're pitching a studio or a comic company or something like that, you're mostly pitching like plot, right? You're you're you know this is this is kind of what happens in the issue generally, and and you may have some thematics and some character stuff and, and stuff like that, but that stuff is always going to be underdeveloped um, uh, or outright ignored in some cases. And I've I've told stories about that stuff being outright I- ignored. We can get into those later, but um, but what I think is interesting is so so you end up in this place where you know sometimes. You pitched on this movie and you get the job, but you pitched plot, right? And it and, and, and then it takes some time to get a deal done. Maybe you have another project in front of it. So you you get down to the business of actually writing the story, let's say three months, four months, five months after you, you actually pitched the plot and you got the job. And you still have your plot sitting there. You still have this outline, this this pitch sheet that you put together. But then you start writing it and then comes the business of, okay, what is this actually about? You know what are the themes? What are what are the what is the big human question that I'm wrestling with in this right? Um, you know, it, in in the, you know, the twist is like, it now has to fit into this plot, right? You know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a cop that has to like save the kidnapped kid or whatever. That that was what I got hired to write, but now I got to make this about something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and that's interesting. And, and, and what it always ends up being is, okay, well, what was I going through at that moment in my life? You know? Um, um, oh, yeah, that was when, you know that was when my mom died. That was when um, you know that was when I was having a, a huge fight with my uncle. That was um, you know that was when uh, you know uh, um, I got into a uh, a credit dispute with a director and they held my checks for six months and I, I thought I was going to have to declare bankruptcy. You know um, and, and all of these things end up kind of filtering down into uh, and and you know I feel like it's easier to see if um, if we are writing. If we're writing a book about us, about our lives, like uh, that's less thinly veiled, that's interesting. But but when you can go back to the action script you wrote in 2006 about the cop who has to save the uh, the, the the kid, and, and and you can see your your wrestling match with your alcoholic mother in it, even though it's not on the surface, that's really powerful and that's really interesting. And I I I love that. Is almost like this um this history, this emotional, you know, philosophical history book uh, of our lives. That's that's really interesting. I don't think about that too often, but
3: it's there. Mm-hmm. I always yeah. find that, I always find I hit that question like maybe three quarters of the way through of like a rough draft. I come to that moment where it's like, what <laughs> the hell is this actually about? Like mm-hmm. it's a crisis, like, You know, up to that point, it's kind of like you have some ideas, you have some characters, you have some juice, you have some. I'm kind of ripping, I'm exploring, but then it's like, what is it? What does it come down to? What is it about? What's the central conflict? And that can, it's like as a writer, then I'm in that belly of the beast. Like you gotta, you gotta choose right now. You know, before it could be all things and you could be exploring many different topics. Now you gotta say something. Like, what are you saying? what's it about? Like, that's always the big question for me. It always is like that climax moment, that belly of the beast moment. Like, this is what this thing means. This is what it's about. yeah you No,
1: know, mm-hmm. I, I, I have that problem sometimes where I want to, I want to know what I'm building, especially when I'm writing comic books and it's something that's going to come out monthly and I'm going to be writing it 20 pages at a time. And, in that way that you write on deadline where like, it's about getting to page 20 and who the hell cares what happens in the next issue. Cause I don't have time to worry about that right now. Right. Uh, I'll try to think of something for the last for page 20 that will make the writer, the reader go, wow, I wonder what's going to happen next issue. And more often than not, it makes me wonder what the hell, but all that to say, and I, I don't know, I it's not something I've talked about a lot with other writers. So it's interesting that a lot of times, that stuff only comes is only possible to come out when I'm actually as deep in as writing dialogue, because it's not until the situations themselves don't reveal the thematic element to me. It's when the characters start talking to one another about what's happening that I go, ah. Oh. I was writing this Doc Savage adventure four issue thing, and I had no thematic hook for it at all. I had no. It's about Doc Savage's cousin convinces him to go looking for Amelia Earhart. And I just thought it was a good 1939 adventure story hook premise. And in the, But I didn't have a theme for it. And in the first issue, when she's talking to Doc Savage and saying, look, you're Doc Savage, you have resources, nobody else has, you can do this. Uh, Doc Savage suddenly said, you might not like what you find you like i'm not sure you want this mystery solved because once it's solved it's solved and if she's dead she's dead and you know is that what you want me to find out for you and it was when i was writing that conversation i went oh that's what that's what this story is about this story mm-hmm. is about wanting things even though you know you might not like how it turns out for you and following a thing even though i was like okay, Doc Savage told me what the theme was, but until I wrote that dialogue, I had no idea what any overarching idea was going to be in the story. It was just a story about, you know, flying over the Pacific and volcanoes exploding and, you know, crazy 1930s adventure, you know, Indiana Jones stuff. It it is funny how you trip over things like that. And and, and it's,
0: it's what I found is it's it's insanely important to kind of leave yourself open to that. You know, there, there's not a lot of that in Hollywood where it's like, they want you to work in a box, but you know, part of the reason that I got into comics was it was so freeing. I mean, you know, uh, Hollywood is so restricted. I mean, they, they basically, they make five, five different kinds of movies. They want you to write them a certain way. There are a lot of things that are out of bounds. Um, you know, the beauty of comics is somebody's blending. Uh, <laughs> um, there's, uh, the, the, uh, the the beauty of comics is you can tell any kind of story in any way as long as it's good um and so you know there's this room to kind of experiment but if but but it's like abalone says it's like if you if you listen to your characters they were they will tell you where the story's going and they will they will give you new ideas <clears throat> the, the the biggest example for me was when i was writing aberrant um aberrant was a 10 issue series and i had it planned out pretty you know pretty substantially. Um, uh, you know, because I was I was used to writing films at that point. It was my first comic book series, and it's like, okay, well, I need to have everything figured out, every twist and turn, and and um, and so I did. But I'm in the middle of writing issue two, and um, and 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 you know, the the lead character, the the, the lead character is this uh, he's this um, uh, um, U.S. Army Special Operations commander who he he loses his his entire unit to a, a superhuman attack. And basically, he um, he goes a wall to find the people responsible, right? And so, in issue two, is his commanding officer is sitting down with him in a bar and trying to talk him out of out of leaving. Um, and basically, his main argument is, "Look, the army is going to come after you if you leave." And and and, and you know, this guy's you know badass action hero, and so he's like, "Look, let him come. You know, what the fuck are they going to do to me?" And 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 then his commanding officer, without me even trying, the commanding officer says, trust me, you don't want to know what the army has hiding in their basement. Like you, you don't want to know what they're going to send after you. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I had not planned for that. It was not, it was not a line I had in my head. The general just said it. Right. And, 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 and I had to lock up the brakes and I'm like, wow, like what, what does the army have? Like, like what is their plan? Because this guy is, you know, it turns out this guy has superpowers and he's, you know, he's basically Captain America. And it's like, well, what would the, if if Captain America tried to leave, what would the army send after him? Like, what could they possibly have that they think could bring him back? It has to be big. It has to be bad. It has to be crazy. It has to be evil. And so me just exploring that, answering those questions led to this character Rook who, who was this like, um, uh, I'm trying to, I'm looking up cause I have my, I have my, my characters. Give me a second. Sorry, this, this <laughs> is great
3: radio. Is that um, Tone Spellip there?
0: AI, yeah, that is, yes, that is indeed Magnum Pi. But um, so, so this is the bad thing, but um, so these are the three leads of Aberrant. This is, uh, this is David. He's, he's our kind of Captain America. This is Cordry, who's kind of the, uh, uh, the antagonist. And then this is Rook. This is kind of the third lead. And he is this, you know, giant beast of a, a of a something that ends up getting sent after David. But this guy, uh, you know, he 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 is born out of this seed that gets planted in issue two,
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, and then he becomes. I, I did I had planned ten issues without a thought of this guy, and then he ends up becoming the third lead of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, he has an entire uh, issue dedicated to him. Uh, he has entire storylines, and he becomes this fan favorite, like. People still pull me aside and talk about how amazing Rook was. And if I had just followed my plan and executed it without thinking, without listening to my characters, he, I, I would have pushed it aside. Like, no, we don't want to deal with that. Fuck that. But me kind of doubling down, exploring that, building it out, building it out, listening to my characters, letting, letting them tell me who this guy was and, and what his motivations were and all that stuff, that ended up being some of like the greatest stuff of the book And it taught me a huge lesson and it's it's something i try to kind of repeat you know uh uh, you know as i as i write is just let my characters tell me where they want to go and where they're coming from and and who else is in the world right
2: it's really interesting it's something the i I keep thinking like the style of books that i write i don't have exactly that problem (laughs) because i don't you know i don't write characters and and stories so much but but i do write I can't I can't get much steam sometimes in doing a long form thing if I think too much about what the whole thing is going to be I just get I I just can't face it and I don't do it so I'll just write little essays and I just collect them you know that are that are about different subjects related tangentially somehow to to zen and then uh, once I got a bunch of them collected, I'll often look at them and see that there is a, there's a theme in them that, that I had not noticed when I was writing them. So, you know, then I got to figure out how to connect them up and make them into something. You know, writing the connective pieces is a, it's a lot of work for me sometimes to try, to try to make these essays that I wrote months apart that, have, that really didn't have anything to do with each other when I was writing them uh, seem to, you know, I, I, I fool people all the time. They read my books and they think it's a book, and I, I go, a ah,
3: book."
0: <laughs> Do you get a lot of pushback from publishers in terms of like what is the connective tissue? Because I mean, here's here's the story: is I I've um uh I, I had a friend who um who wrote a very successful self help book recently, and um and 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 he knew that I had been toying with for years the idea of writing uh, uh you know some sort of Zen book. Um, and, and I talked to you about this the idea of maybe doing a book about the precepts because that you know that that's been the you know if there are, if there's Dharma that I've really connected with it's been the precepts and i've I've taught precept series and and all of that stuff um, and so I've toyed with the idea of that and so this this friend who wrote this you know self-help book has has been pushing me uh, uh, very violently in some cases to 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 try and write this book and and you know it's gone so far as to introduce me to his publisher and all of these things. And it's like you know, I mean, I have the precept material written essentially. I've given you know, I've given ten hour long talks on on individual precepts, right? Um, and so that's there. And the 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 big note uh, uh, from the publisher types is like, what is the connective tissue? What is the overall story? You know, mm-hmm. what, what 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 is the you know, what is the what is the narrative from start to finish that's connecting all these things? And so I you know, I always I always wondered that. I mean, you, you guys you guys write in a similar fashion uh, uh, where they are kind of essays that, you know, again, they they take place in the same world, but they are about different things. And then, you know, the, I mean, I think the magic of your books is how those things come together when, when maybe, uh, I don't want to say they shouldn't, but uh, in, in, in less capable hands, they wouldn't, or they might not, you know what I'm saying? Um, so, I mean, is that, is that, are, are, is most of the talk with your editors about that sort of thing or?
2: Well, when I did hardcore Zen, there was some of that because that 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 book was the most that the editor I had on that book just drove me up a wall, <laughs> and I never worked with him again because it was so difficult to work with a guy. But I think one of the reasons that book is is so successful and still sells better than any of my other ones is because he kind of demanded certain things that I didn't want to do, and I still don't want it to do. But you know, he he wanted it. He had this vision of it being like this in-your-face punk rock book. And and in the initial draft of it, that was there, but that wasn't the main thrust of Hardcore Zen, wasn't the in-your-face punk rock, you know? And he kept pushing me to put more more punk rock into the book until finally I... The one chapter I regret is that well, not regret, but it's, a, it's this chapter about meeting Gene Simmons that was totally forced because he he <laughs> demanded some kind of rock and roll element, you know, more rock and roll elements. And I had met Gene Simmons on a couple of occasions, and I and I forced a, a Zen theme on my meetings with Gene Simmons, <laughs> which really wasn't there. Um, Amazing. I, I, when I look back on that chapter, I'm like.
1: Uh. <laughs> But yeah, there's a bit of that. Yeah. My uh, my coworker, <laughs> Elvira, had a life-changing, uh, uh, spiritual lesson that she learned from Gene Simmons. Oh, Is not Elvira mistress of the dark? Yes, I write oh, the Elvira okay. comics. All oh, uh, right. She no longer wears her costume to do signings and things at conventions. Mm. And I'm going to paraphrase her a bit here, but when asked why. She was at San Diego comic-con a few years ago in her outfit, going to a panel or a signing or something and coming towards her. The other way was Jean Simmons also fully made up. And she thought, what the hell is wrong with us? We're in our city. Why are we still doing this? She didn't say this, but my joke is Shatner isn't downstairs in gold pajamas. Why the hell am I, you know, he's not in a maroon, uh, a, a, a maroon sport coat like Captain Kirk might wear. He's just in his fucking sweater. I think I should start coming to these things as a nice red-headed lady in a sweater and not be this ridiculous thing all the time. And, you know, that ridiculous thing has made her a ton of money, but it's just when Gene's seeing 60-something-year-old Gene Simmons walking around the con as if he was a cosplayer of himself. Uh, she learned the lesson of like, you know, I no longer... I no longer need the peacock feathers. I will still get a line of people who want my signature. And then I,
3: I've
1: I, I w- I've seen her at con ahead. since then, and the lines are not smaller because she's no longer in the black dress with the giant wig on her head and all that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I was going to say, I wonder if she got to Jean because the last time I saw Jean at a con, uh, he was wearing a sport coat and uh, and looking. Uh, either brilliant. that, or maybe he saw the interview where she said
1: that and went. Okay, now I feel foolish. I will stop.
0: Finally, looked in a mirror like, oh
3: god,
1: it's like, what the hell? But yeah, I just, uh, that's uh, (laughs) that that, that's its own spiritual lesson is you know, I don't have to, I've reached a point in my life where I no longer have to put on the costume of me, I can just be the nice old redheaded lady in the sweater and people will still love me. And, and it's funny. I mean, it's not, not to go off on a complete tangent, but I remember about about 10 years ago, I was packing for a convention and you know, I'm a huge science fiction nerd since birth. have gone to conventions since I was 12 years old. And I, in the closet taking out shirts or whatever, folded up neatly all the way in the back was a nice gold captain Kirk tunic. And I looked at it and I went, you know, i'm very i love cosplayers god bless them they look fantastic they make the experience a delightful carnival and i have no i have nothing dismissive or anything to say about them but looking at it for myself i went i actually am kind of glad that i've reached the point that i'm willing to be myself at conventions that i i don't part of the attraction of going to those things when you were a kid was I can be captain Kirk for a day. I can be Indiana Jones. I can be Han Solo. And it's like, I know, you know, I've internalized the Han Solo. It's fine. Mm -hmm. I don't need to wear the gun and the vest and all that. The Han Solo is inside and you know, if people see it, they see it. I don't, I don't need to walk around in the outfit. Um, But you know, like I said, but anyone's mileage may vary. And I have no, uh, I have no negative feelings about that. I think it's great. You know, sometimes Zen books, uh, Zen groups look like uh,
2: cosplay to me. You know, cosplay I've always,
3: I've always, felt, I've always felt that way that when I was at yeah. the Zen center and we were all wearing our Japanese robes and our Ruxus and our big, huge sleeves and doing it. It's just like, this is like, this is like total cosplay. <laughs> yeah.
1: temple
3: is. Yeah, it's a, well, I mean, I, uh, you, know, you know, we
0: all. I had to go get it. Sorry. <laughs> I have my, uh, so, so I, I feel so strongly about what these guys are saying now, Avaloni. That, mm-hmm. uh that at some point to rage against the machine i went out and i made a welcome back cutter rocksu so that. that's great. So, the, so so the last time we had a big uh ceremony i uh i handmade this um you can and see is that this, from this a,
1: is a, a a welcome back Cotter comic strip or comic uh book? well this was a series of welcome back cutter i think probably sheets and so oh, wow. it,
0: it, it, it's two very different ones. You can see Barberino and Mr. Cotter and uh, you know, and then there are the, these sayings in your ear with a can of beer up your nose with a rubber hose. Uh, you know, and then I have my, my boom, boom uh, uh, button on there. Um, right. So, so, so yeah, this was uh this was my answer to all of that, <laughs> but but it is, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to get out, out too big as a, 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 a ramp, but yeah, I can. um I mean, my, I I spent a lot of years as a a Buddhist nomad where, you know, I was, I mean, LA is, is rich with, uh, you know, with Zen, with Buddhism. It's the beauty of it is it's, it's, it's this interesting buffet in a way where you can kind of sample this, sample that and kind of figure out where you belong. Um, And and that was my biggest, that was my biggest complaint a lot of the times is that it felt like um, you would go to a certain place and it didn't feel like you were meeting actual people. It felt like they had, they had put on this robe. They had put on this costume, and they became something else. And it was kind of this, this. You know, they were putting on a Zen play almost, right? Uh, uh, and 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 they wanted you to play your role in it and act a certain way. And there was no room for. Or you know personality or, or self expression, and of course I mean you know you have to you know this isn't a you're not going to a fucking dance club, so you need to be respectful and you need to follow traditions and stuff like that. But um, but this idea of check your personality at the door it was very troubling to me, right? And so um, and and so I think uh, you know, um, I don't know. As you progress, you kind of find where you belong and you find your people and you find your uh, your way of practicing. And so uh, so yeah, I, I found a place that would accept my. <laughs> My welcome Back Connor Rock Super B rocks. How
3: long did That's it take you to sew that? Because those are not easy to sew. That's like a real <laughs> commitment to Yeah, oh,
0: yeah well, well, you want to know so so I think this is I think this is the third one that I ever sewed. So I was I was kind of in um I was kind of in practice by that point. Uh, I I sewed this with a machine and I didn't hand sew it like I did the other ones. But to tell you the truth, I I I I made this from start to finish in a week wow Um, and you want to talk about like expressing yourself and like pouring like hurt and pain into something so um so my uh my mom died and and i kind of went into a hole and what i did for a week uh after my mom died was make this Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and so all of that went into this and so i'm kind of you know again you talk about uh you know, you talk about uh, creative things being these little time capsules. It's it's all in here. It's kind of cool. Yeah.
1: yeah, and and you know, I'd also say that all social situations, all work situations, they all have people cosplaying in them. They all have people. I mean, I think the most toxic people in Hollywood aren't even necessarily the big level monster predators that are out there. There are so many people that just lowercase model, terrible predator behavior, because it's what they think. Well, this is how producers behave. This is how, and it's like, they don't have to, (laughs) you know, you don't actually have to be a horrible person. There are literally a lot of people who think that to be a movie star, to be a director, to be a producer, you actually have to be a horrible person. You have to, if you're not abusing your aid, you're doing it wrong. And it's like, No, actually, there there are a million counterexamples of that. But it's this limited thinking of like, this is the, these are the vestments required for this action, so I will wear them. Even if the vestments are I throw a phone at at a person and complain about my coffee not being hot enough, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, it was what so they
0: saw. Nonsense. It was what they saw, right? Hurt her, her people, hurt people, right? So, yeah. so they got they got bagels thrown at them. So now they throw phones at people.
1: That's yeah. That's no, I I better. did a movie with Rob Schneider, and he was a deeply, deeply unpleasant and unhappy human being. And part of me was like, you know, third tier Saturday Night Live performer. How the hell did he? Where did he learn to do this? And then I remembered he had been Stallone's sidekick in about four movies. <laughs> And now he was starring in movies. Because I know I've I've worked with Sandler. Sandler's a pussycat. He didn't learn it from Sandler. So I had to conclude. I was like, I bet this is how Sly Stallone acts on sets. And he went, I will model that behavior. I am in charge. I will be unhappy and miserable and make everybody else around me miserable. And suppose- uh- mm. no, go ahead. No, I, su- I, I suppose that the the zen cosplay
2: just to get zenny here is probably intended to do kind of the opposite you dress as this sort of meek uh monk who who won't do anything wrong and it sort of forces you to uh to kind of be that person at least while you're wearing the clothes which may be one of the reasons why i so strongly resist wearing the robes myself because you have have to turn into this uh kind of specific sort of being when you wear them.
3: Yeah.
1: No, and people express shy. There's a there's a Bill Maher documentary I'm not a fan of his about religion where he talks to a Catholic priest and the priest is very to people who have not spent a lot of time around real Catholic priests, he's sort of shockingly honest about what's wrong with the church and what's wrong with you know even organized religion. And I think people are shocked, but it's like that's because you have only seen Catholic priests in movies, and you've never actually talked to one, <laughs> you know, they're human just like us. And the collar does not immediately make you Barry Fitzgerald in a 1930s uh, Warner Brothers picture. It's you know, you you're a you're there is a there's a full spectrum of humanity in any one of those costumes, and it doesn't confer upon you, you know, like, oh, he won't curse, he's got a robe on. It's like eh. You know, he might actually, um, you know. Yeah, I mean, all- there,
0: there, are certain, there are certain people that weaponize that expectation, right? And that, uh, oh, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, the, the priest is up here and uh, and we're down here. And, uh, and there are certain people that kind of wield that like a sword, right? And so mm-hmm. if you, you start to break that down, then they lose power. And a lot of people don't like that, but.
2: There's that poem uh, Leonard Cohen wrote about putting on his robes, Uh, you know, he's like smiling because he knows the one, where he goes into this beautiful description of of waking up in the morning and putting on his, his lovely Zen robes, and the last line is, over my enormous heart on. <laughs> nice. <laughs>
0: I, I, I don't know why. I, I don't know why I don't know that poem. Uh, I, I, Avalodi. Um, so, so uh, uh, Leonard Cohen actually practiced at the same center as, uh, as Shozan, not, and, and I did not know that. And they spent a lot of time at, uh, at Montbaldi together. And then uh, Leonard wrote the foreword
3: to Shozan's first uh, book. Oh, nice. So, yeah, yeah, making hearing you guys talk about like third level celebrities like Rob Schneider, and then thinking about Leonard Cohen, like the difference between. <laughs> Asshole celebrities, and and the Letter Cone that I knew was just like you know. I mean, Letter Cone was just when I met him and when I knew him it was just everything that you would imagine about him is true. Mm-hmm. Plus, more humble and a better sense of humor. You know. Yeah.
1: yeah, people say don't meet your heroes, and literally every hero of mine that I've met was just better than I could have possibly imagined. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. I did a music video with Tom Waits a million years ago and he was uh, as kind and thoughtful and friendly a gentleman as I've ever met in my entire life. And friends of mine know him a lot better and say, you know, even nicer things about him. So that whole idea of like power fame has to come with personality trait X, Y, or Z. It's, I used to, (laughs) uh, I knew a woman who moved to Los Angeles from Georgia. She was a writer and she posted something shortly after moving here. Like I can't pay my rent, but I, you know, my gym membership is all paid up and I'm driving down Sunset Boulevard with my air conditioning on in a convertible. Uh, you know, and she was like, LA turns you into an asshole immediately. And I was like, no, you were always an asshole. (laughs) LA doesn't do anything to it. LA is like liquor, whatever you are inside, it gives you the space to express it. And if what you are inside is a horrible person who pays their gym membership but not their their rent, LA will will give you the space to do that. But I don't, I don't actually actually believe that. Uh, I don't actually I I don't believe the corruption comes from the play, place. I think that the design there. Are, it's it's like it's like the the pilgrims. There are people that came to America to escape religious persecution, and there are people that came here to practice it. As strongly as they possibly could on other people, and I think that's there are people that come to LA to create things, and there are people that come to LA because they 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 enjoy the idea of being the powerful person who throws coffee at assistants, and uh, and those are the people you have to stay as far away from as humanly possible, um, you know, and that's the. That's the spiritual practice of the, of living in Los Angeles and working in show business is, you know, knowing that that toxicity usually is not well hidden. It, I think we, I think, I think we will end on LA
0: is like liquor. <laughs> 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 That's great. So yeah, we should probably wrap it up here. Yeah. Uh, um, you, you want to go ahead and take the wheel? Avalone?
1: Oh yeah. Well, we usually end with, uh, asking people where they can be found and, uh, where people can find their work. So, uh, Zen, why don't we start with you, you no know,
3: I'm, I'm my two books zen confidential single white monk and i'm on twitter and facebook and i'm going to probably set up a patreon page and start putting content up there soon so okay. uh, stay they posted terrific and yeah. Uh, brad
2: yeah i have a i have a blog which i haven't been keeping up on that much uh, at uh, hardcorezen.info so the name of my first book.info and then I have a YouTube channel that I do a lot more uh, stuff on these days which is I think uh, youtube.com/hardcore Zen so everything is, is hardcore Zen but uh, I tend to be pretty easy to find online I, I do I do uh, like three videos a week these days nice. to just
1: try to yeah. well and'll we'll, uh, we'll link we'll put a link to that page on this show when it's on uh, YouTube itself. And Ryland, where can people find you and your fabulous? Yeah. Uh, welcome back, Cotter. Hmm. Rex, so. um,
0: yeah. Well, I, first let me let me wholeheartedly uh, uh, endorse these two gentlemen as uh, as writers and authors. Uh, their books are wonderful, and that's the reason I sort of uh, had them on. And I am uh, uh, feel lucky to to call them friends, also, um, and uh, and and confidants. Uh, I am uh, at Ryland Grant on uh, all forms of social media. That's R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T. I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents kind of drunkenly arranged letters and settled me with it. Now I have to spell it for you. So uh, so there it is. Um, my books, uh, the Ringo Award-winning aberrants. I'm, I'm big on the visual aids today. And the uh, four time Ringo nominated Banjaks are available in uh, fine comic shops everywhere and on Amazon and Comixology and all of that good stuff. So uh, hunt those down. Um, my uh, paranoid uh, um, astral projection thriller, The Jump, and my Fargo S crime drama, The Peacekeepers, are available right now via BackerKit if you go to uh, thejump2.backerkit.com. Uh, you can find all that stuff and sign copies of Aberrant and Banjax and Convariance and all that stuff. It's kind of a one-stop Ryland Grant shop uh, at this point. Um, we didn't talk about it, uh, uh, which which is weird because we're sitting here on a comics podcast, but Brad and I collaborated on a comic oh, book. Um, it is a, a tokusatsu joint that is uh, uh, going to be, what, what is it now? Uh, it is uh, middle of May. Um, early June, it is going to be announced. Uh, um, uh, being, uh, putting comic shops via uh, Source Point Press. Oh, boy. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I'm extremely, uh, excited. They're, they're a great company and they've been amazing to work with. Um, but yeah, kind of a, um, uh, you know, Brad worked for, uh, uh for years in Japan for the, uh, the company that made Ultraman. And, um, and he is a, a tokusatsu, uh, uh aficionado and, an expert. And I have, uh, for years been paid to write, um, uh, you know uh big hollywood action movies and so we we kind of uh uh married our two uh, interests and pursuits and so the idea was to do um to do tokusatsu for like the modern american uh, action movie theme and so what we ended up with is is something uh in the neighborhood of a soulful uh, uh fast and the furious uh meets voltron uh, uh which sounds weird and crazy but it, it's really awesome and then the the byproduct of it also was that um you know, to say we're 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 teaching uh, Zen with it is uh, is is maybe a uh, an overstatement. Um, but we were exploring uh, uh, various uh, Zen principles in it in a very subtle way. Um, Squeeze a little of, bit
2: in there. Yeah,
0: yeah. Squeeze a little bit. Away. And in fact, Dogen. Uh, Dogen is a a reoccurring character in the book. Uh, uh, Dogen is is you know perhaps the uh, the most famous to, uh, uh, Soto Zen uh, monk. Um, uh, for the uninitiated, um, but but the, you're, you're going to see that in comic shops uh, starting in August. Uh, it'll hit previews in in June, and so that's coming soon. And so look out for that. Um, this is uh, this is breaking news right now because um, Sourcepoint hasn't even uh,
1: announced it. So when do you know when the previews issue is coming out?
0: Uh, it, you know it, it'll be June previews. So
1: so tell your local comic book shop owners fans yeah. pick up the issue of previews find the page and point at it and say order me this daddy it's called it's called
0: it's called suicide jockeys so uh there you go uh, that's yeah, probably
1: cogent information right there yeah yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. Title. yeah. Uh, the title lead with the title
0: and and lead promoting your book i'm doing it at the end of the podcast when you know yeah baby, i know everybody's
3: already everybody's it. turning <laughs> off
1: <laughs> <laughs> God right, damn so these guys suicide Jockeys yeah. in previews tell everyone um uh, I can be found at uh, freelance.com with various branching off buttons to all of the social medias and et cetera. Uh, my next thing that will be in shops will be Elvira meets Vincent Price, Ooh. which she indeed does for four issues of, uh, I think we'd have to call them hijinks. And uh, later this year, there will be two more Elvira specials. There will be more stuff from me and Kevin Eastman, but it's a little bit top secret at the moment, so I can't uh, give away. But uh, that's what's going on with me. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys, for being such delightful guests. And we'll see you all on the next exciting episode.
0: Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you. Ciao. Thank you. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on the Writer's Block.
2: For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.